My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. I have something very special to share with you today. I spent the greater part of this last week in Boise, Idaho for Storyfort. It's the literary leg of Treefort Music Festival, this huge festival of artists and music and amazing food and just incredible, incredible events. I got to mix and mingle with so many awesome people, including my wonderful publishers, Amberjack Publishing, and eat so many incredible foods. And I'm not just talking about potatoes, you guys. They really know how to cook in Boise. And I got to share Girl Boner in some very fun new ways. So basically, you could throw in some dogs and a little Oprah, and it was like all of my favorite things. One huge highlight for me was the chance to interview a comedian I've recently become a huge fan of, Emma Arnold. You'll hear the bulk of that chat today where we discussed her upbringing in Idaho around lots of naked lesbians and very clothed Mormons, her challenges and ways she's found healing from sex and porn addiction, and a whole lot more. I'll hop in a bit later to address a question from a listener with Dr. Megan. This listener is feeling really embarrassed about a particular body function that happens during sex. It's not uncommon, so there's a good chance that you or a partner may have experienced it. This episode is brought to you in part by The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to get toys and sexual health products. They also offer free sex ed workshops in stores. So if you're in New York, Los Angeles, or Chicago, stop by there. Visit their website, thepleasurechest.com, to shop or find out about these fabulous workshops. They're always free. You can also just click the ad on my website, girlboner.org. While you're there, I hope you'll sign up for Girl Boner Extras if you haven't. I send updates about once a month, often featuring goodies you will not find anywhere else. Now, without further ado, my story for chat with the fabulous Emma Arnold. I'm so excited to be here. I host Girl Boner Radio in Los Angeles, and this is my first time with like an actual audience. So can you please prove that you're here? So exciting. So I'm here at Story Fort for my first time in Boise for my first time and promoting my book for the first time. Thank you. It's called Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, and it releases August 7th. It's available for pre-order, though, and you have the option to place an order for it today from Rediscovered Books, and you can also get a sampler that has, like, five chapters, and it's kind of a fun. It has the same cover and everything. So I'm really, really, really excited to have Emma Arnold in the house tonight. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I know you have so many fans. I was just telling Emma, every time I mention her name to people, they cheer. It's, and, and for good reason. I've really been enjoying your work. Your oh, comedy you. is so 
I know heartfelt is used to describe you a lot, and I find myself saying the same thing. It's you are edgy, and you aren't afraid to address taboo subjects, so I kind of feel like we're soul sisters. I immediately upon meeting you felt the same way, and I had this similar reaction when I was like, oh, I'm doing girl boner. People were like, oh my gosh, lucky. So. Okay, yay, yay. So would you share what you learned about sex and sexuality growing up? Sure. So um, my parents are like mountain hippies, teepee living hippies. And so sex was actually pretty uh, groovy, talked about. Like I saw my parents naked a lot. We were uh, nude hot springers. Um, My lesbian aunts lived with us and they had a sweat lodge in the backyard. Um, And so there were always a lot of lesbians coming in and out naked (laughs) and sweaty. Um, And we had the book, and I can't remember that. You probably know, the ty- there was a book for children about sex, and it has a, um, a rather robust couple standing in a bathtub making out. Did anybody else have that book? It was, a very, it, was, it was very frank, and it said, like, this is a penis, man. Like, it was just very cool. Like, penis is hair. People get it. It's no big deal. Like, it's, it was very, like, groovy. My parents were very groovy about sex. Uh, and I, um, I was the only kid like that because I grew up in Idaho, so all my friends were Mormon. So like on our bookshelf, it was like Joy of Sex and like um, Our Bodies Ourselves. And my friends would come over and just like pour through these books and be like, what? So I, I, yeah, I had a pretty open sex ed. Wow. So did you find yourself having those unanswered questions? Because I feel like since most of us do not have that experience, we have all of these like well, I don't get it. And we get told to like, don't talk about it. So not so much, not because of my parents, but because I had older sisters and so uh, stepsisters. And when my, when our families were combined, I was pretty naive and innocent. My mom was very protective. We weren't allowed to watch television. Um, we weren't allowed to watch movies. And then she combined with my stepdad and his girls and he was pretty permissive and my sisters knew everything. And so I, when I was probably about 10, I remember my sister being like, do you know what a blowjob is? and describing it to me, and I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I, I was only allowed to watch PBS up until that point, and like, you know, like, we were pretty open about sex, but it also wasn't, I hadn't been super curious also up to that point, so my sisters, any question I had, I could always bring to them, and then they would just blow my mind, <laughs> it was probably too much, usually. Another kind of blowjob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you learn about girl boners? Did you learn about pleasure? No, God, not at all. Um, For as groovy as my family was, you know, they still had the sort of American sexuality. And um, I don't think anybody talked about uh, orgasms or, and it's funny too, since I grew up around a bunch of lesbians, maybe, I mean, maybe part of it was one time I, we were all in the pool in the back and I looked up and I saw my aunt and her wife Um, you could, we had a shower window that was like frosted, so you couldn't really see in, but you could see in, and I saw them making out, and I remember just being like, oh, god damn it, like, that's gonna stick in there forever, (laughs) like, it's right now, I could draw you a picture of it, um, so it's surprising that I grew up, I grew up with, like, all these empowered women around me, but, like, female sexuality wasn't really discussed very much, and I, you know, I, this is, kind of surprising like honestly I don't think I masturbated till I was like 21 like not successfully like yeah. I kind of knew something was happening down there once in a while and I honest to god married the first guy who found my clit like I was like okay he's a he's a magic man and he this is love this is what love feels like so I married him and it wasn't until later that I was like oh you can just do this yourself you don't have to get married when you're 19 it turns out Amazing. Did you learn anything in sex ed in school as well? Yeah, but Idaho sex ed. So uh, <laughs> you guys all seem to know. Everybody's what that is. like, oh, so no. Um, 
In fifth grade, they separate the genders and they have the girls go watch a video and the boys go watch a video and the girl video is like, well, now you're bleeding and that's gross. Uh, that was the sex ed, I think. I don't think they even talked about sex in it. It was just basically like tampons, yuck. Uh, you're going to start maybe shaving. Good luck with that. Um, but uh, the woman, the mom who was showing us our video didn't know we were only supposed to do the girl video. So she started showing us the boy video too. And we got about halfway through before the principal come, came running in and was like, no. <laughs> we were right at, at nocturnal emissions, I remember. And she came and shut it off. No, 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 no. This is for the boys. You know what is so sad to me? We learn about nocturnal emissions from males, right? Mm-hmm. And girls, people with vulvas, also have wet dreams. And it's not talked about, right? No. uh-uh. Yeah. So how did you, do you feel like there was a reason you didn't masturbate until age 21? Was it because you were like, sex is everywhere and I just don't want to have to think no, about it? No, I think I, I think it just didn't occur to me that girls masturbated. Like the guys I knew, you know, I grew up around a lot of boys too. Um, I was a, I mean, what we used to call a tomboy. Um, I actually... Uh, pretended to be a boy for for three years I identified as a boy now what we would call non-binary but back then it was just Emily's a little weird and uh, so I hung out with a lot of boys and they made a lot of jerk off jokes and um, and so I knew that boys did that but nobody ever talked about girls doing that and so I just didn't I think I just didn't know that it was an option I think it's part of the reason I got became sexually active so young was like well that's the only way to get that as a young woman yeah yeah no I totally felt the same way and for a few reasons, and I think one is that we just do not learn that that's even a thing, right? But then also, because if you have a vulva, your genitalia is somewhat hidden. So it's not like all of a sudden, swing and you go, oh. Yeah. You know, I feel like that would be an obvious next move. Yeah. I mean, I was a pillow humper. I'm not saying I wasn't a pillow humper. That's like, it's not like I didn't ever masturbate. I was humping pillows and stuffed animals like crazy. <laughs> But I didn't know really what I was doing. I just remember being like, this makes my head feel itchy. Yeah. I'm body hot. What's happening? <laughs> but I didn't really know what I was doing, and I would have never told anybody. Like, and I, none of my friends growing up, nobody talked about girls. Like, nobody would have ever admitted to it, ever. Like, none of the girls I knew. So even, even yeah. though we were pretty liberated, even though my sisters were really liberated, none of us would have ever discussed that or talked about it. So did you question these ideas? It seems like you're so bold in your work and I know you've talked about puberty class that you've gone to with your stepdaughter and obviously a lot of myths are really perpetuated and you really hit on these these topics did you have this drive to like you know debunk this stuff or did you ever get frustrated that you didn't know I think I did, uh, but it only just manifested for me in boning more Mormon boys. Like, I don't know that I took it. Like, I think I was so sexually frustrated when I was, like, 16 that I just was like, if you, if you have sex enough, it finally is satisfying. And so I, you know, I just was, like, really overactive with it. But I, I think it, it was because it's all kind of hidden. Nobody was like, here's your clitoris. This is how you work it. I mean, if they even have a manual on that now... Um, I feel like there's a couple good ones, but like we're not teaching girls even now. Um, I was trying to have a conversation with my son last night, a very delicate conversation, because he was talking to me about sex. He's um, 15, and I was like, how comfortable am I saying clitoris over and over to my son? Like, I'm really pretty cool and groovy, but I was like, vulva, you know. Uh, I was just kind of like, I couldn't, 
I was like surprised by how stopped up by it I was even now, you know, even with being someone who pushes norms and is like, I was like, how far is this okay to talk to with my kid? Like I, I was like, oh, I need to sit down and examine this because I'm not even sure right now, you know? And he's asking questions. It's not like I just went to him and was like, Volvo, let's talk about it. You know, like he was asking pretty pointed questions. So yeah, yeah. I love that you were able to admit that discomfort too. I've had questions today from parents who were like, how am I supposed to talk about it when I feel uncomfortable myself? Yeah. And I think admitting that we're uncomfortable and just saying, you know, this is awkward for me. I didn't learn anything and I want you to have a better experience. And if you, if I don't know the answer, then let's, let's research the answer, you know? Yeah. And a huge, because I have three sons. So a big part of the conversation I'm always having with them is about consent And I mean, to the point where they're like, oh, again with this, you know, but I feel like if you're the mother of a son or I mean, I guess a daughter too, but this is from my perspective, like that conversation to me is every time I kind of, I always bring it up and it's framed around that, that if you're not getting an enthusiastic yes, then that's a no. And then my son's like, well, how do I get an enthusiastic yes? And I was like, oh, well, huh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which is so interesting because... (laughs) Enthusiastic consent is consent now, right? Mm-hmm. But that language has changed. It used to be consent was yes or yes means yes, no means no. And now we're talking, which I think is so important about enthusiastic consent. And thank you for talking to your sons about it. But what's interesting is that question that comes next. Well, how do I get somebody to? And it's like, well, that's actually I feel like that's kind of bending consent too because you're strategically trying to get a reaction instead of how can we be respectful and connect and let this evolve if it does. Yeah. Which is a hard thing, I'm sure, to teach a teenager. A teenager who's basically like, I really want to lose my virginity. (laughs) And I'm like, well, you should wait till someone special comes along. Is that what you did? No, <laughs> you know, like it's a hard conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like I thought I would be a lot more prepared for it because, because of my parents, you know, not, I don't want to say mistakes, but the things that I felt like I lacked as a kid, that even though they were so open about sex, there wasn't talk about desire and, uh, you know, and actually like th- it wasn't really okay for sex to feel good because my parents for as liberated as they were, they were so part of the culture that was like, well, but sex is bad for girls just inherently, just so you know. So I, I feel like I'm trying to like avoid that, but it's still, it's a tricky thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So when you were talking about pillow humping, (laughs) you were saying that you couldn't admit to it. Like even to yourself, even the fact that you weren't calling it masturbation says something, right? And I feel like we have so much shame around all of this as, as a culture. And you shared something with me that I just connected with that. I interviewed somebody Erica Garza, who's this wonderful author, she wrote a memoir called Getting Off about her experience with porn and sex addiction. And her addiction started with she masturbated, immediately felt ashamed uh, in a very Catholic family. She'd never been through any sort of like traumatic event or anything. And there's this idea that you have to go through all these different things to struggle in that way. And I feel like shame itself is somewhat of a... I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd call it a trauma or not. But I, it's we tough. we call it in the group Simon little t trauma. Like it's still a trauma, but it's a little t trauma. Yes, yes, exactly. That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, and so for her, she ended up becoming addicted to the shame as well. Mm-hmm. Like she couldn't self stimulate. She she couldn't have sex without 
feeling ashamed and the shame was part of the arousal and the desire because it was like imprinted into her, you know, and, and very changeable because you, you can change those things, but it's the only thing she knew and no one was talking about this stuff and she just knew it was bad. So she ended up really struggling to the point that it became incredibly destructive in her life. And I know that you also have struggled with some sexual addiction. Could you speak to how that kind of took root in your life? Um, sure. Well, I was sexually abused really young, starting from the time I was a baby uh, until I was about nine years old. And so obviously that had something to do with it. Um, you know, sexual uh, sex was sort of taken away from me so young um, that I feel like there, and there was a lot of shame around it. It was a very confusing thing. But also, um, I was really badly physically abused. Um, and a lot, of, a way that I would self-soothe after being physically abused was I figured out pretty early on that you know pillow humping or whatever felt good. And so I, or or a lot of times I wouldn't do anything physically stimulating, but I would fantasize. And I would fantasize about being rescued or about a man coming or you know a boy coming along. And I would I spent a lot of time at, when I was young in fantasy and um, you know just sort of I, I was hypersexualized so young. I also found a, a pretty big porn stash when I was probably about eight and became just immediately obsessed with it. It was just like, um, I found some magazines, but then I also bought a box of uh, like romance novels, but V.C. Andrews romance novels, where it's, it's mostly sex. It's mostly just a bunch of BDSM stuff and a lot of incest. And I became obsessed with these books, and I would highlight the dirtiest parts and then give them to my sister. And, um, and I would read those over and over, and it became just sort of this neural pathway for me that like when I was stressed out, I was able to turn to sex and sexuality as a way to just kind of calm myself. And I mean, that stuck with me for my whole adult life. I've had a porn addiction my entire life, um, you know, probably since I was about seven. And that has always been a, something to turn to um, when things were too stressful. And, and same with sex. Sex has been uh, a real struggle for me. Um, like, like she said about shame, I think sex for me until very recently was really like the pleasure of it uh, was very built around shame. I had, you know, I've always had a, a what we, you know, an interest in uh, the darker arts, as we'll say, the BDSM things. And a lot of those things for me were built around I could only allow myself to feel pleasure after a certain amount of abuse. And um, which is, has been a slow switch. I mean, uh, sexual templates are so imprinted. It's, it's something that's taken a lot of years, a long time to kind of like reform and find a healthy relationship with a lot of those actions, which I think can be a part of a, a fun, healthy sexual relationship. But for me, for a long time, weren't. Thank you for sharing so vulnerably. I think it's so important because, especially around these topics, my first year of Girl Boner Radio, which was about four years ago, I did an episode on porn addiction, and it was a, a female's perspective on her, her boyfriend having the addiction. And as with all areas of sexuality, I thought, there's no way this is just affecting cis guys, right? And so I started to do some research, and it seems to be affecting people of all gender identities, but there's so much more shame around even a, a woman watching porn, period, uh, that it just, I had several people, and actually you mentioned the very young age, it was seven years old, right? Mm -hmm. There was a mother and daughter, they were both addicted to porn, and they wrote to me, and they had a question, and I asked, you know, would you be willing to share any information that I could maybe relay, could help people, but I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, so totally fine if not. And they were like, I don't think we can. I'm like, totally fine. 
nobody wanted to talk about it. And you are the second person of hundreds of people and tons of research that I have done. So kudos for your bravery. I know not everybody has to speak up, and I think it's really brave to exist and to to cope and to heal in whatever ways that you can. But I think it's also very, very important to have stories and to because when people can hear something and go, oh my God, I didn't know anyone else was going through that. Have you met other people who struggle or who have struggled similarly and who did have that like, oh my gosh, same here kind of thing? Well, I mean, it's popular enough we have meetings for it. You know, uh, it's the kind of thing, uh, there's a whole community of people who struggle with it. And there are less women, I think, um, partly because, uh, you know, I go to meetings all over the country. I mean, guys, not to brag, but I belong to several 12-step meetings. And... uh, Um, definitely sex and love addiction is one that, uh, it can be intimidating for women to get into those programs because when you walk in and it's 20 dudes in a a church basement, you're like, Oh, I'm out of here. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of times women just get turned away by the fact that there's not enough women, um, and which is an unfortunate snake in its tail situation. But, um, but yeah, they, you know, that's for me been part of, um, part of my healing process has been. I, th- I have a unique situation. I think a lot of people are, um, if, they're, if you're a sex addict, uh, you're not in a situation where you can be very public about that. You could lose your job. Uh, but you know what? Fuck you guys. You can't fire me from this, turns out. Uh, <laughs> this is my job, is going out there and just talking about the true, ugliest shit about me. And uh, so this is, I ha- I've, I've always felt like I'm in sort of a unique position to talk about my problems, to talk about the reality of things, because even when I, about three years ago, I started um, becoming pretty public about the fact that I was sexually abused, and I did it kind of unintentionally. I, I support speakyoursilence.org, uh, and they help people who were sexually abused as children find free counseling, and I, I, my, part of my merch sales goes to them, and at a show, I was talking about that, and then I did a joke about being sexually abused, which went over, uh, you know, about as well as you'd expect, and, uh, but after the show, this guy came up to me. I was walking out to my car, and this gigantic man, like 6'5", um, he came walking. I saw him, like, approaching my car, and I was like, oh, no, and he came up, and he just burst into tears, and he was like, I was sexually abused also. I've never told anybody, not my wife, not my therapist, no one. But what you said tonight in your set, that joke, made me realize that there's not shame in this and I can talk about it. And so I feel, I feel like uh, that's been a big part of my healing is like maybe there's a point to that. So what happened to me is that I can, that I can talk, to, talk about it and make it slightly funny, even though if it makes people very uncomfortable. <laughs> I think there's so much growth potential in our discomfort. I, I really commend you for that. Could you speak a little bit about anything that you found helpful? You mentioned the 12-step meetings. I know several people who really benefit. Um, What has helped you the most as far as accepting yourself and working through the shame? I mean, it's been a long process. I've been in recovery uh, for about six years, and um, I had about four years of sobriety, and then I had a relapse, or about maybe a little longer than that. Um, I, it's definitely, it's a, it's been a hard thing. Uh, the, the meetings have helped me. All the meetings have helped me with my multiple problems. Um, therapy has helped me a ton. I, I was talking to someone recently and they were like, I would never do therapy. And I was like, it's 2018, man. Like you're like the one guy not in therapy. (laughs) 
you're a lone wolf out there, you know, just like, I'll just muscle this down and do it on my own. Um, so, so therapy has been immensely helpful. Actually, journaling and meditating. Um, I had a, Addiction has a lot of rituals, and I had a lot of rituals around, um, around my issues, and I've tried to replace those addictive rituals with healthy rituals. So in the morning, I wake up, and I meditate, and I journal, and I try to replace the things that I used to do with healthy, with healthy behaviors, which just sort of, you know, frameworks my day around trying to be a healthy person. And I found journaling has been probably one of the healthiest, like most helpful things I've done. It's just bookending my day every day with in the morning, what I'm grateful for, what I'm trying to do, you know, setting my intention for the day at the end of the day saying, how did I do? What did I fuck up? You know, who did I hurt? Where was I wrong? What did I get right? You know, I just try to bookend my day with that. And that's been really helpful. That's beautiful. I love the way that journaling lets you freely express. And I feel like I have an addictive personality as well. And I feel like it's so, it's been a challenge for me. Something I still work at is allowing these big feelings Mm. and, and being present in them instead of trying to like, you know, diet it away or drink it away or whatever the addiction thing is that someone's struggling with. Uh, Have you experienced that? Oh yeah. I mean, my family is Swedish and you do not feel things in a Swedish family. Yeah, you same. tuck it away, you know, <laughs> yeah. and and that so um, even just feeling small feelings was a big like I, I feel like I even little things like what is this? What's this? What's happening? What's happening right now? And I'd be like, you're happy. It's OK. Like I, I've had panic with like good feelings where I'm like, what? What is like? I just have so little experience. I've been numb, honestly. Looking back, I've probably been numb for probably 35 years of my life. Just really pretty baseline numb. And so now to come out of that, to be really for the first time very soberly in my own life and feeling things has been pretty overwhelming sometimes. And I have had pages of all caps where. I had to just kind of be gentle with myself and be like, this is okay. You can have compassion for this. You don't have to judge this and be like, this is some crazy shit. You know, I tell you like, it's okay. It's an all caps. It's an all caps morning is where we're at. And that has taken some time to just have compassion and and acceptance. I've been saying recently a lot that I feel like the biggest thing that for in my, in my recovery and in my mental health journey has been self-acceptance. Um, just, just letting myself be who I am with flaws, just just saying, that's okay. Like when something happens when, and I'm like, oh, I'm really jealous. That's an ugly emotion. That's okay. That's okay. That's who you are today. That's just what's coming up right now. And just kind of let it pass and just be nice with it. I love that. I love that phrase in all caps day. Too. <laughs> A simple phrase that has helped me that seems kind of ridiculous when I say it is, this is just who I am. And it's helped with body image issues that I struggled with for a long time where because I, I struggled with body dysmorphia, where you don't see what other people see in your body. And so I would look in the mirror and go, I, I could see all these things that were, quote, flaws in, in, my, in my mindset, and just go, this is, this is who you are. This is who I am. This is who you are. That's it. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that little surrender thing of like, eh, yeah. there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, I've been able to kind of do the same thing. Oh, God, it was so horrible when I first I was I went to outpatient treatment about six months ago. I was lucky enough to get to go. And one of the things that they had me do is every time I had a negative self thought and I had a lot, you know, I would have just like you're you're worthless, you're trash, you're garbage, you know, just like all the time just running through my head. And when I'd have a negative thought, I'd have to go and find a mirror and say three nice things to myself out loud while maintaining eye contact, which I don't know if you've ever done. It's horrible. Uh, it's 
so it, it's so intimate like I, I, when was the last time you actually looked at yourself like eye contact in the mirror deeply lovingly it is really hard and intense and so I would be like hey buddy uh you're, t- you're, you're you have great shoulders and uh, <laughs> you're did a you good have mom. to really believe these things or were you could you say anything nice or did you have to like genuinely feel I love those shoulders no no you had to you were it could be stuff that you didn't believe yet in fact they gave me I was having such a hard time they gave me a list of things to just go through one by one and so I would be like uh, you're a human spirit having a human experience good for you, man, you know, like, (laughs) and so at first they felt really stupid and awkward and I hated every second. But as I, as I was able to start doing that, like you just are who you are, you know, this is who you are. Uh, I was able to more and more, like now I can look in the the mirror and be like, you're brave, you know, and just like give myself some finger guns and feel pretty good. Some of the time, about, (laughs) about 30% of the time I can actually do that. That is powerful. So how does, comedy play into all this for you I'm not familiar with your timeline of your career has the healing process or working through these issues and coming to terms you you mentioned self-acceptance being so huge did that precede comedy and allow it or was comedy kind of part of the whole deal (laughs) no uh comedy I mean comedy very much helped me I know this is always hard for people to believe but before I started comedy I was very like mousy very quiet. Um, uh, I was not like a, a super outspoken person. Um, I was in a pretty abusive relationship and just pretty beaten down. And I started comedy and it really helped me like find my, find my spine and like find my voice and learn to speak up for myself. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, it's a really difficult job to do and like yourself because you're basically in front of a room full of people being like, like me, please. Oh my God, please. This is so hard. I feel like such an asshole up here. And, uh, and so it's like a, it was like, you know, at the same time it was making me feel better. It was also kind of tanking me every night. And, and, um, that's been a big thing I have learned and I've had really good comedy mentors who like when I've bombed a show and I would just feel like, Oh, you're so worthless. Um, Dana Gould is one of my, is like my comedy dad and the most amazing person. And he, I I called him after bombing a show and he was like, you're going to do a hundred thousand shows in your lifetime. You think you're going to remember tonight? none of this matters. None of it matters. And I was like, oh. And so I feel like I've been able to, as I've gotten healthier, kind of just set aside the reaction and, and stick with the work and just always just, just be about the actual comedy. It's also been, um, if, if anything, uh, comedy brought me to my bottom, which I needed because it is a hard and heartbreaking uh, industry to be a part of as a woman. And it's, it's really difficult. It's incredibly sexist. Uh, so much harassment. I mean, I was at a show uh, uh, like three years ago. I was pretty fresh. I was really excited. And the headliner grabbed this, uh, another female comics boob right before she went on stage. And I, I watched her, the shock of it. And, um, he was like, have a good show, honk, honk, you know, and I watched the shock of it hit her. And then I just watched her be like, and set it down, go out, murder, have a great set, come back, sob in the green room. And I was like, that's what it is to be a woman right there. Like to just be like, power through and then cry about it later. And, and that happened to me a thousand times. It's happened to every woman I've worked with a thousand times. And it just broke my spirit over and over and over until it cracked me. I mean, it just destroyed me. Luckily in the last couple years, I mean, I've seen the women in my industry, uh, like two years ago, um, uh, I was at a festival. I was one of two women out of 50 and I was like, this is a stupid festival. This is stupid. And I spoke up about it 
And they were like, make your own fucking festival then. And I was like, okay. And, uh, <laughs> and a lot of women I know did that, just became gatekeepers, just, just started shows, just started festivals. We're like, I'm not living in a world where I don't get treated like a human anymore. I mean, you're seeing it all across the board, but it's been incredible in my industry. And it's not dangerous out there anymore. I mean, in the same way. I mean, it used to be you tell a booker, like, I don't want to work with that headliner. He raped a friend of mine. And they'd be like, do you want to work or not? And I've turned down a lot of work because of that. And it's getting better now that like a booker kind of has to. When you're like, that guy's a rapist, they can't be like, nobody cares, sweetie. They have to be like, I got to pretend to care, sweetie. So... Shit's changing a little. (laughs) Wow, that is incredible. That is really incredible. So I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and do a little bit of sex girl boner trivia, which I would love you all to participate in. And if you don't, then we will just play. (laughs) Uh, So the first item, I want you guys to guess if these are true or false. You can just yell it out. I won't put you on the spot unless you really want to come up here and chat. Thinkgasms are a thing. True. True. Did you hear how many uh, feminine-sounding voices were like, <laughs> yeah? And then these guys were real quiet, real quiet right here. They're like, no, oh, up. Uh. Yeah, yeah, they're very real. And they've actually been proven in MRI studies now. And it's very interesting because I participated in an orgasm MRI study not thinking myself to orgasm, but manually stimulating. And the researcher, he told me that he didn't, he didn't know if people actually could orgasm without using their hands, but these people kept claiming they could. And so he researched it and the brain, exactly the same reaction. So it can be really powerful for sure. And if you've ever had a a wet dream, that's kind of a thinkgasm, right? I feel like that's like, because I feel like we kind of stand in the way of our thinkgasm sometimes. Like they could happen, but we're kind of like, because one of my friends actually had one in the car. She's just driving, and all of a sudden, there she goes. Wow. So <laughs> you can hear about it, all, all about it on Girl Boner Radio, recent episode. Um, women are less visual than men. I actually mentioned this in my talk earlier. So. False. Yeah, yeah. Very savvy group here. Yeah, it's totally false, and it's interesting because there's no evidence behind that. How Except for a bunch of guys being like, oh, you guys are less visually stimulated. <laughs> Than we are, so I can wear these cargo shorts and not comb my hair. Because uh, you guys don't care. We don't, you don't care what we look like. And for like 200 years, we've been like, okay, and shit's changing. Get a comb. Uh, I love you. Women peak sexually in their 30s. People with vulvas peak sex- sexually in their 30s. Hmm. I mean, I have heard that. And I'm in my 30s, so I keep saying it, you know? I just keep being like, I'm in my peak, but I've been planning that to be, like, another 20 years. So I don't know. Yeah, Is yeah. Is that false? That's also false, mm. yeah. So what's interesting about this one, because I think we've all heard this, right? Probably. It came from this tiny, tiny little study. Uh, how many people? I don't remember. It's in my book. Um, but in 1953 was that study. And they asked men and women these questions about orgasms. Can you imagine in 1953, who's going to be like, yeah, I feel really aroused right now. Like that just wasn't happening. So what happens is we get this headline and it just gets passed around like telephone and it becomes this factual thing, this truthiness. I think is that Stephen Colbert's word? I love Mm -hmm. it. Truthiness. All right. In some parts of the country, bikini waxing requires parental permission for minors. 
True. That is true. Does anyone know the state? Idaho. Idaho. Utah. Maybe not. Maybe Idaho is as well. Does anyone know that for a fact? No. It's Missouri. Oh. Yeah. Penis size and foot or hand size are directly correlated. That's very false. Yeah. Yeah. That sounded like I knew something, didn't it? Like, actually, the opposite. That's true very or false. I was like, true. There's no, false. Okay. No, okay. totally not We're true. We're going, I did not know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because if you think, if we believe, because we hear that a lot too, right? So if somebody has large hands and you're dating that person and you become sexual with that person. Imagine the kind of pressure that puts on a person, you know, the performance anxiety and all of that. I think it's really important to, you know, cause there's a lot of penis shame. We don't hear about mm-hmm. that as much, but it's interesting to me that penis size is like the ultimate way to shame a person. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and still kind of, and very socially acceptable still. I would say in a lot of in a lot of circles where now you would get shit if you were like making you're making fun of a woman's body, but still you can be like, but you have a little dick, you know, (laughs) and you know what? I'm going to be frank with you. I'm kind of okay with that for like another two years. Like, let us just have (laughs) let us have a couple years of like having something on men and then we'll be like, all right, equality. Okay, now equality now. But it does feel a little good. Like, I can see why, you know, it does feel kind of nice. When it is the, the slinging back and forth, too, there's yeah. some sort of, like, equilibrium or something. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Uh, in 2010, according to a national study, cisgender guys, ages 18 to 24, 60% of them had not had intercourse in over a year. True. Also true. Mm. You guys are so with it. Does anyone want to expand? Why, why do you feel that that's true? Um, so, so you're saying they hadn't had sex in over a year I, I, just from in my experience with having, because I'm a comedian, having a lot of male friends, um, I feel like it's very difficult to get laid when you're just a dude in a beard walking around. Like, <laughs> I just think women, like, it's, it's interesting that the power structure is like, you guys get everything else and we get to decide whether we're fucking or not. Like, that's it. That's it. You get the judges in the courts and then we get this one thing that's ours. And I, I would love to see a, a power shift where men are like, I'm not putting out. Uh, I, I'm, I've got, you know, like, you know what, like if, if eventually we do get to a place where we stop making fun of little dicks and the, everything shifts and everything gets nice and equal, maybe there'll be some equality there in the genders where guys, where guys will feel sexy and they'll feel empowered. I think that's something men don't get to have is they don't get to walk around and feel like I'm sexy. I love my body. Um, ha- have you watched the new Queer Eye? That's what that shit's all about is letting men feel sexy and beautiful. And I feel like that's why that's that year thing is that's yeah, why it's totally missing. I really do think so. And I would love to have a culture where a, a guy's manhood isn't wrapped up, his masculinity isn't wrapped up in him having this strong, robust sex drive and being hard on command. You yeah. Know? I, I think that that's problematic for everybody. I think, th- I mean, so many men I know um, are like, feel so pressured to have a crazy high libido and they're like, I am not that guy. Like, I don't, you know, they're, they're not like crazy you know I feel like that you have to be a man you have to be like in a flannel and chasing puss all the time and that sounds exhausting that sounds really hard to always be reaching that standard when you're really like I just I want you to come over and cuddle and I've had so many guys be like I just want to cuddle and I'm like that's probably bullshit and then I get over there but they want to cuddle that's what they want to do and I think maybe you know there's some room for that so as you know if you've been following Girl Boner for a while I love challenging myths and gender stereotypes, which is one of many reasons 
I loved chatting with Emma so, so much. It made me so happy. Here's another gender stereotype that can get a little tricky. Girls should always smell like flowers and not make too much noise. This week's question touches on this idea and another that seems somewhat universal in terms of squeamish, at least in developed countries. Discomfort around passing gas. But not just any old passage of gas. I bet you were either hoping for or fearing another soundbite there, weren't you? This question comes from Brenna, who wrote this. Hi, I love sex and orgasm with ease, but I have a really horrifying problem that makes sex slightly um, horrifying. Every time I orgasm, I pass gas. Ugh, I'm just embarrassed So thinking about it. I've gone so far as to moan super loud or play music to cover it up, which helps sometimes, but it can also be really distracting. Please help. Should I eat different foods or something? Brenna. Brenna, thank you so much for this question. I know for a fact you are not alone. Trust me, I did a bit of research and it's actually not uncommon to pass gas during sex or orgasm. Some people fart a lot during orgasm every single time. And while movies make sex out to be this like really pretty, pristine, odorless thing, (laughs) some of the best sex is pretty noisy and messy. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of Great Life, Great Sex had to say. Brenna, thanks so much for this question. And, um, you know, I can imagine you might be at times feeling self-conscious or embarrassed, but I'm so glad to hear that you enjoy and love sex and uh, have no difficulty achieving orgasms. So fortunately, you're not getting distracted or inhibited uh, by this on any level. And I guess I want you to help appreciate that, um, and I'm going to talk to you about diet and things that might be helpful, but part of it is just to recognize sort of the mechanics and um, that during intercourse or penetrative sex, uh, the sliding motion of the penis actually does cause pressure on the anus, which is next to your vaginal wall. So it's that back and forth action that can often easily cause those back gas pockets that evacuate, and that is the farting at the time of orgasm. So... Um, one of the things you can try is to focus on pelvic floor exercises to uh, strengthen your external sphincter muscle and learn to contract them during orgasm. Because again, often what's happening is when you're climaxing, the muscles around your genitals are relaxed and that's what allowing the gas to escape. So focusing on contracting your sphincter may be a great solution. That being said, when and if it's distracting because again now you're having to think about something and if it's too much thinking and it's in any way interfering with your pleasure um, or ability to orgasm I would say just literally let it go and maybe one thing that would be helpful is to think about the sense of reframing you know instead of it being embarrassing recognizing maybe it's just funny nothing's I think adding humor to sex is always something that makes it sort of more light and playful and it's also true it's a sign in the sense of how much pleasure you're having so really sort of framing it from it's a simple indication of having such a great time is another route and then last but not least I would say it's often helpful to look at your diet um, because it's not uncommon that certain foods Um, And certainly carbonated beverages can be adding to uh, gas. And so I would have you definitely think about speaking to a nutritionist or getting some more information. But typically, it's fatty foods or ones that are hard to digest. It's the refined sugars or other carbs that contain sugar. Um, And sometimes even having too much fiber too soon. So, you know, start looking at your diet. 
think about pelvic floor exercises and trying on uh, and seeing whether or not as, as you're reaching orgasm, you contract your sphincter, whether or not that's a helpful technique. But ultimately, it's just to sort of relax, let go and have fun and, you know, experiment. But ultimately, as always, let us know how it goes. Thank you, Dr. Megan. I loved what you had to say. Again, the letting it go, which literally and figuratively, I think is really good advice. I think a lot of people don't really mind that much. And she mentioned diet. So keep in mind that different foods affect people differently. And as she said, if you suddenly increase your fiber intake, that can cause gassiness, carbonated beverages, chewing gum, all that kind of stuff. And actually red meat can cause some uh, kind of less pleasant aroma or flavor just right before. So you could experiment with those things, but I do think that what she said about relaxing your pelvic floor can be really helpful. And I imagine the stress that it causes you, like you're like, I hope this doesn't happen, might actually make more tenseness. So another thing just to point out that sometimes it's actually queefing, which you've probably heard that term before. So queefing doesn't produce any it's not actually flatulence. People call it vaginal farting sometimes, but it's actually not. There's no smell that doesn't involve the anus. It's totally normal. It's just air getting trapped, and that's totally fine. It's a very, very normal, common thing. So is passing gas. Both are natural functions. So if that happens, again, like Megan said, it could happen just from the penis, you know, putting air pockets within you. It could also happen with toys. It could even happen with your fingers. So you could experiment with your vibrator, with your fingers, and see if that makes any kind of difference. And I don't know if you're actually going to know about this, Brenna, but actually there is a fetish for farts. Oh my gosh, there's like a fetish for everything. Somebody listening probably has this fetish. It's a proctophilia. A proctophilia. Most commonly found in straight men in which they receive arousal from their partner's flatulence. Interesting, right? So I found this interview on Psychology Today. A man named Brad has this fetish, and he said this, I have had my face farted on by both men and women at point-blank range. I like the sound and smell. The worse, the better. In terms of sound, I prefer a deep bubbling sound. He's really thought about this. In terms of smell, I like acrid sulfur. I prefer the farter to be clothed. I don't particularly like seeing the anus open. So there's a bunch of specifics he listed. And then he said, to see a beautiful, delicate lady passing wind, is a breach on those expectations in a profound manner that a beautiful woman is capable of producing a disgusting sound and smell is what attracts us and makes us want to experience it. So that's if you have the fetish. Now, again, if it was more normalized, I imagine it wouldn't be a fetish in this case because it's like unexpected, right? The whole idea that even women don't fart or burp or, you know, make any sort of like loud grunty sounds. <laughs> I think that's all, you know, those are all kind of stereotypes. So anyway, I, I would be curious, though, if you've approached this with a partner to say anything like, you know, is this something that bothers you or has this happened to you before? I think it would be really a, a possible vulnerable conversation to have, but could also be interesting and maybe it will turn out to be not such a big thing. So I am wishing you the very best, Brenna. Thank you for that question. So speaking of potentially awkward things that can happen during sexy play, here is one more bit of trivia from my live podcast at Storyfort with Emma Arnold. Blue balls are a totally legit thing. Oh, really? Okay. No, they... (laughs) (laughs) Shit. They actually are, and so are blue... Clits. Yes! Yes, uh, so Betty Dodson, who is 
the mother of masturbation. She's an amazing sexologist. She's 82 now, and I, I interviewed her for my book. And she talks a lot about the fact that you don't want to just let your arousal just hang there. You know, it, it, we, we get it's the buildup of blood as you're getting aroused. Everything is moving because something's going to happen, and then if it doesn't happen, you get a little blue. Yeah, okay, yeah. That's what I thought. I finished my chat with Emma Arnold by asking how working in comedy has changed her. Like I said earlier, I feel like it's given me uh, a lot of spine, and um, it's given me kind of the opportunity to, uh, to I mean, I don't want to say push, but like get my message out there, which is, um, you know, I, I do a lot of activism for women and um, for survivors. And so I'd, I'd say that that's been a big part of my comedy journey. Um, I also think that it's, it's given me uh, a lot of bravery because um, I, I think a lot of us have sort of these images of, our, of who we are. And I know for me, I always thought of myself as, you know, very quiet, meek. I was a very bookish kid. I was very quiet and, and it's kind of a sad kid, you know, a weird sad kid. And uh, you know, an honorable honorable mention kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> One of those kids. I know what you like mean. your poetry makes people bummed. Um, <laughs> and I feel like comedy comedy has given me um, it's given me a relationship with other sad, bummed out weirdos. You know, like comedians are such a, as much as I've kind of shit talked some of the industry, uh, the people I've met in it have become my best friends, have become my closest allies, have, have saved my life over and over. But also the, the fans, um, I've met so many people. Like I, my job is bananas. Like I get to go all around the world, meet incredibly fun uh, charismatic people and and then after shows people like want to hang out and they, they're they like we'll take you to a museum like everywhere I go people are just like hey we'll take you to a hockey game and I just try to be, engage in that and you know for somebody who grew up really isolated like up in northern Idaho and who was just like shy and kind of kind of a nerd like to just have this whole world all of a sudden to have all these kind of friends all over the place and wherever I go be welcomed like I I get welcomed in the weirdest, like some tiny town in Texas, you know, where you're like, oh, this, this liberal bitch is not going to fit in there. They're like, we made it. We have a chili feed we're throwing for you. You know, like people are just so kind everywhere, everywhere you go. So I feel like that's what it's given me is like a, a sense of community and a lot of really funny friends and um, a big fat mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Which you use so well. Thank you. <laughs> Tell us where people can learn more about you. I know you have an album out. You also have a beautiful blog. Thank you. Um, so my blog is on my website, emmaarnoldcomedy.com. You can find it there. Uh, I blog about all sorts of stuff, comedy and recovery. Um, my album is Shut Up Calvin, and it's at, available iTunes, Spotify. And my special, which uh, just premiered over at the Flicks uh, about a half hour ago, uh, which was really cool and fun, will be available on YouTube because I'm just giving it away. Because uh, Honestly, because nobody asked for it. But let's pretend. <laughs> But let's pretend it's because it's also because uh, this co the community has given so much to me and and has really fed my soul. And when I was deciding what to do with the special after it was finished, I was kind of like, what if you just gave this back? Like, what if instead of shopping it around and trying to sell it for a year, what if I was just like, you know what? This like making this saved my life and people helped me helped do it. And what if I just give it back? So that'll be out on YouTube next month, guys. Yeah. Thank That's you. So exciting. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you again, Emma, and everyone at StoryFort and Amberjack for making my time in Boise so fabulous. If you were there and you're listening now, thank you for joining me here as well. I loved meeting you all and sharing Girl Boner fun with so many amazing people. For more seriously fun comedy, be sure to subscribe to Emma Arnold's YouTube page and give her that little thumbs up, post a good comment, post reviews where you can. It's a really simple way to offer support. If you'd like to support Girl Boner Radio similarly, I would be so grateful. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.